So, if you have a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 13. We're actually going to look at chapters 13 and 14, believe it or not, today. So get ready to move fast. Our plan is to continue a steady pace through Genesis. All right, And it's, it's been a while. We've been working our way through Genesis, started in chapter 1, and here we are into chapter 13. Um, and we're going to try to keep moving for better or for worse, all right? Here's why I say this. I could preach six messages out of the passage we're going to look at today. Six. I counted them, all right? Six. But I'm not going to. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to learn six lessons from the events of Abram's life here, all right? Um, My encouragement for you is to look for places, as I'm describing it today, to rest and repeat. All right, And so for those of you with musical backgrounds, you may know what I'm talking about when I say rest or repeat. In music terms, if you come to a rest, that means you don't play. You just kind of sit there and wait for your turn. Okay, If you repeat, that means you repeat. You do that same section again. Okay? And so as we're going through here today, I'm going to cover a lot of material. I'm going to give you a lot of different things. But there may be a couple of these that really stand out at you that you need to kind of rest and repeat on. All right? Things for you to take home and through the week or the coming weeks, you sit, you think about those things, you meditate on those things, and and allow God to to get into the, the deep places because there's some deep things to be found in these stories. But if we went through each one of them, guys, we'd be in Genesis until 2025, easily, all right? And so we want to know all of the Bible, and so we're not just going to bury ourselves in Genesis forever, okay? But if we cover a story that really resonates with your soul, spend some time meditating um, on it, all right? Now, here's where we begin. Right in Genesis chapter 13, we're going to start by reading these first four verses, okay? So here we go, Genesis chapter 13, verse 1. So Abram went from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot went with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai. To the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Now, if you were with us last week, you remember that Abram and Sarai and and Lot and all the households went through. It was a real fiasco in Egypt. All right, this was the story that we looked at last week where there's a, there's a famine that they're running from, and so they, they relocate into Egypt. But when on their way into Egypt, Abram says to Sarai, you know what? You're really beautiful, and that's going to be a problem when we get here into Egypt. Because what's going to happen is they're going to look at you, they're going to look at me, and they're like, this isn't going to happen. They're going to kill me, and they're going to take you. And so what does Abram do? He's something stupid. He says, why don't you just tell them all that you're my sister? And we'll just see how that plays out. Well, it didn't go well. If you remember the story, they go into Egypt. Pharaoh, sure enough, she was beautiful. It gets, it's, that, that you know, um, knowledge, insight gets all the way up to Pharaoh, the king of the land. And so Pharaoh ends up taking Sarai as his wife. Not a good thing. Plagues come on Egypt. 
Pharaoh's wondering what in the world's going on. Somehow or another, they figure out this is all tied to Sarai, who is not that guy's sister. That's his wife that you took. And so Pharaoh, being a spiritual man or a superstitious man, whichever it was, says, I don't want to have anything to do with this. You take your wife, take your stuff, take all the gifts I gave you, and get out of here. All right? And so Abram takes off with an angry wife, and they all head back into this other land where they've been, and the famine's over. All right? That's where we pick up here in verse 13. They've left Egypt now, and they come back. But I want you to notice that worship continues for Abram. He comes back to where he was before. He comes back to the spot between Bethel and Ai, and he begins to call upon the name of the Lord. In fact, that, if you, you'll recognize it from earlier in the story, that's the same place where he first built an altar and where he first worshiped God. Now, here's... The, the first little thing that I want you to think about with this. I'm grateful that the Bible doesn't edit out all of the failures of the people of God. It's important. It really is. They could just give us the highlight reel, you know, the greatest hits. And all you do is you look at these super people of the faith, Abraham, as we'll, his name will be changed later. We, we get to Hebrews 11, he's like, oh, of the hall of faith, Abraham. And we're like, wow, that guy must have been just a spiritual giant. All right, but when you start going through the details, you start realizing, okay, spiritual giant is doing some things that are not so spiritual, okay? And it doesn't. The Bible doesn't edit those things out. Many of the most important characters in Scripture had profound times of doubt, of moral failures, of times when they were driven much more by fear than by faith. People like Abram, people like Jacob, people like Moses and David and Peter, James and John and Paul, we see those things in these people's lives. And so that brings us up to the very first lesson that I want you to see here today. Lesson number one, here it is for you. Continue to call on the name of the Lord even when you blow it. Even when you fall flat on your face, even when you sin, even when you say something stupid, do something stupid, even when you're disobedient to God on purpose, continue to call on the name of the Lord. Abram here, he had at least several days' journey as he's coming out of Egypt. And I've got a feeling he was getting a serious silent treatment from his wife. <laughs> he had time to reflect on the, the decisions that he had made in Egypt. But you have to understand that God doesn't need time to let his anger cool toward you. People sometimes do, but God doesn't. In fact, Psalm 30 verse 5 says, his anger, referring to God, his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for a lifetime. You have to understand, God doesn't need time for his wounds to heal. Jesus carries the scars of our sins in his body forever and ever, is what the scripture tells us. He offers us forgiveness and healing. But our hesitation sometimes to come to God when we've sinned or when we've messed up, our hesitation just kind of stretches out the process. It just takes longer. 
And, and I think probably many of you know what that feels like, right? You know I'm, I'm not where I'm supposed to be, but instead of going straight to God and trying to get right, you're just like, ah, I'm just going to give it some time. <laughs> yeah, maybe tomorrow I'll talk to God again. Maybe a couple weeks. Maybe, I don't know. Someday I'm going to get right with God. Someday I'm going to work it out, but just not right now. But that's not the way that we should do it. Instead, repent and return to the place of worship. That's what needs to happen. Come back in front of God. Pour out your heart, get right, and move on. And that's what Abram's done here. He goes right back and he says, well, let's get back to worship. Let's figure out what needs to happen and let's move forward. Now, we move on in verse 5. And it says, And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. Remember, Lot was his nephew. So that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. Go on in verse 7. And there was a strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen, we're family. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. All right, I'm going to go back to a map for you guys, because some of you love maps. All right, so this is kind of a zoom in from what we had looked at last week. All right, now, it's kind of hard to tell here. Oh, interesting. I gave them the wrong, this is my fault, but I gave them the wrong map. All I did with this map is I drew a little yellow and blue line that comes right down here. And then another little yellow line that comes right here where you can see that stripe. What that delineates is modern-day Israel, okay? The, this is the land of Canaan in the time of Abram, Canaan. This is the Mediterranean Sea. This is Israel. This is the Dead Sea. This over here is Jordan, modern-day Jordan. But the, those two dividing lines are what you see the borders and the boundaries of Israel. Now, when they talk about where Abram is, is worshiping, it's right here. Here's this little city of Bethel and this little city of Ai. And right in the middle there is somewhere where Abram had that altar built. Okay? Um, and and w this is where he and Lot have this discussion. Where he says, look, there's too many of us here. Where do you want to go? Now, in the time of Abram, this right here is also, this is the Jordan River. All right? And, and you'll hear about the Jordan River a lot in the Bible. This river goes from the Sea of Galilee, which is up here, where Jesus spent a lot of his time. It comes all the way down here to the Dead Sea. That's the Jordan River. If you cross the Jordan over here, you're in the country of Jordan. If you're on this side, you're in Israel. All right? 
But during this time, this entire valley was very lush. As it says here in the scripture, it was like the Garden of Eden. It was was well fertilized and it was fertile. And and there was tons of just little villages and towns through here. Beautiful area. All right? That is the, the side, that is the area that Lot chose, the Jordan River Valley. Whereas Abram stayed toward the west. And so through the life of Abram, we'll see him kind of wandering through this area. He's going to settle here in Hebron, and we'll get to that here today. Oh, and also, notice this. Down here is what, where, where we estimate Sodom and Gomorrah were. If you know the rest of the story, there's no remains of Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? But that's roughly where they were, somewhere down in this area. All right, now back to where we're at. So God had promised to bless and prosper Abram. Remember, as we, as when he first appeared to Abram, he said, this is what I'm going to do to you. And through your descendants, I'm going to bless you in incredible ways. And that's exactly what he did. And the households of Abram and Lot, because they'd been traveling together, had become huge. Huge. They were the heads of two families traveling together. And now we picture two families, oh, you know, so I've got, you know, my extended family. There's maybe 20 of us or something like that. No, no, no. Big families. All right, we're talking like Mexican families, big families, right? Big families. In fact, as we're going to see here in a little while, there's 318 strong, able-bodied men that are coming just from Abram's household to go fight later, okay? So we're in the hundreds of people at this point, if not thousands, all right? A really large family. And these two families have been traveling together, and they, they shared resources and advantages, but as they continued to grow, it started to become a disadvantage, It was there's so many of us, the land can't hold us any longer. And so they come down these these big areas, but they've got all these flocks and all these herds. Well, there's only so much water. There's only so much good pasture land. And so what happens is the people in Lot's family that are, you know, tasked with, hey, you make sure you take care of all the animals. And the people of Abram's family who have the same role, they start arguing and fighting. It's like, we were here first at this well. No, we were here first. Well, take your herd and go somewhere else. So this is starting to happen. And so Abram and Lot have to come together and say, we've outgrown each other. We have to separate. We're going to have to go in a different direction. This is where we get lesson number two here today. There are many times in our lives when God will shrink us so that he can grow us. Okay, sometimes he has to do that. God will shrink us so that he can grow us. And I know that a lot of times that feels counterproductive. You're like, wait a minute, God. Here you've told me you're going to bless me, you're going to prosper me, you're going to help me grow and develop and move where I need to move. And now I'm in this place in life where I feel like I've been reduced. I've been minimized. I've, I've been cut down and, and pulled back. But these are the times, and we're going to see this as well, when we learn humility and dependence on God. And many times, it's in those places, at those times in our lives, where we hear God most clearly. It's also where we learn to release control and not make demands on God. So even though it's an uncomfortable thing, painful, sorrowful sometimes thing, it can be the place where we grow the most. 
So we have to recognize that God will sometimes shrink us so that he can grow us. Jesus described it this way in John 15. He said, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser, the one who takes care of the vine. Every branch in me, and he's talking about people here, and describing people as, as being attached to him as the vine. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Pruning is cutting something back. It's cutting it away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear bear more fruit. And this is what was happening with Abram. We look at it and we kind of pass right through. It's like, okay, yeah, great. Lot went his way and Abram went his way. But what you don't understand is this would have hurt Abram. He was used to having Lot as, as his, 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 yeah, his relative that he was close to, but also just having the, the extra resources of everybody there. It was comfortable. It was what was needed. And no one likes to be minimized, right? We're the people, we just want to get bigger and better all the time. We always want to move forward. We don't want setbacks. We don't ever want to lose anything. God has the long view. He knows what we need. And God's plan was to work through one family line. That's what he had told Abraham. It's going to be you and your descendants, not your second and third and fourth cousins. It's going to be through your line. And so he narrowed them down this way. And I do want you to notice that Abram was generous and kind and let Lot have his choice of the land. He said, Lot, whatever you want. You go that way, I'll go this way. You go this way, I'll go that way. I want you to have whatever it is that you need. But I still think that this separation was discouraging for Abram. And I say that because pruning usually is. It just is. It's the way it is. And I make that conclusion from personal experience, but also because of the verses that we look at now, because God comforts Abram. Okay, look at verse 14. Here's what it says. Then the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. God encourages Abram to lift his eyes and look to the future. He comes to Abram and says, look, I know that that was hard. I know that that was discouraging. I know you're not sure of what's going to happen. But I want to remind you and reiterate to you, I'm doing it. And I'm going to do it in your life. The things that I said to you, the promises I made to you, it's still going to happen. You may not see the path, but it's going to happen. Lift your eyes, get up, get out of bed, (laughs) and move forward. And go at where I've called you to go. He reminds them of those promises. And it was necessary that the relative would split away, but God's promise hadn't changed. 
But this is still so hard. Even if you have those promises of God, the times of waiting, the setbacks, the famines in the land, the inflation, (laughs) the struggles, the failures, the pruning, those things hurt. They hurt. But that's where lesson three comes in. Lesson three is keep your eyes on God. Keep your eyes on God. And my encouragement to you is to keep pressing forward. Continue to follow God. Stay close to him because you never know when a victory is right around the corner. That's what we're going to see here with Abram. Paul says it this way in Philippians 4, 8 and 9. This is probably almost everybody's, one of their favorite verses in the Bible because it's just so good. Here's what he says. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. This is the same lesson that we're, that we're learning here. When Abram is encouraged to, to keep his eyes on God, this is what, what Paul describes in the, Philippian, the, the letter to the Philippians. He says, think about these things and the God of peace will be with you. He says it in Colossians where he says, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated. This is it. If you want that encouragement, it's there for you. Keep your eyes on God. And you never know when something like this might just happen. All right, here we go. Chapter 14. We're still going, people. We've only got through halfway now. Three. Three of those lessons. we got three more. Don't worry. You can do it. Chapter 14, verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasser, get a load of this name right here, Kedor Laomer, I'm not going to try to say that the 12 times that it's in this text, We're calling him Cheddar from here on out, okay? All right, Cheddar Laomer, Cheddar Lover, all right? Now you guys are all thinking of cheese, but that's all right, the king of cheese. Cheddar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea, as we saw on the map. Twelve years they had served Cheddar, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Cheddar and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveh Kirathaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim. With Cheddar, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Aramphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elasser, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. Right? Um, bitumen is 
is actually, it's, uh, it's asphalt, but when we view as- picture asphalt, we think of like what our roads are paved with, and that's partially true. Asphalt is actually the substance that kind of glues that stuff together. It's very similar to tar. Um, you guys can study this on your own. Um, all right, but it's these tar pits, basically. All right, and, and the Valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them. That's how some people met their doom. They died in these pits, all right? And the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. And when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. That's a lot, but let me, let me give you a recap, a simple recap. Basically, four strong kings go out with their forces to subdue the neighboring kingdoms around them, okay, and to control them. Four kings go out to fight five kings. And they defeat these five kings who resisted as well as all the other people who happened to be in their path. And then they're on their return trip home. All right, so if we went through the map and tried to find all these places, and we know where a lot of these places are, and the, the ruins of a bunch of these cities and, and, and kingdoms are there, you basically see that they just did this giant swoop through the, the area. And they just came through just wiping people out. And, and putting them all un, under tribute and taxation. And then they went all the way down and then started way back north to where they're headed, back toward Syria and Damascus. All right? Abram, though, finds out that his nephew, his favorite nephew who had been with him all this time, his nephew and all of their family had been taken captive. So Abram takes 318 only, 318 men, to go... And, and Dan is 120 miles from Hebron. So that's like us walking to L.A., all right? Um, he takes these 318 men, and he marches to Los Angeles. And in the night, he attacks these armies that have just wiped out all these other people. Now, admittedly, these armies weren't expecting it. They thought, wow, we've wiped out everybody. There's nobody who's going to fight us. They're on their way back. They're probably partying. It's the middle of the night. Some of them are hungover. It's, it's a bad situation for them. Abram and his men come on them in the night, spread out the way they need to. They're tactical, and they wipe them out. And they take back all of what had been stolen. So they fight these four kings and their armies, and they win. Now, you might say, well, why is this story even in the Bible? Not to mention a pastor has to read all these names to people. <laughs> right, but why? What, what do we get out of this? Okay, great. There was a battle and they won. What's going on here? Now, maybe it's just to show the favor of God on Abram. 
or the strength that God would bless Abram and his family with. But here's what I think that the point is, and this is lesson number four for us today. This was an impossible situation that only God could make possible. And God does impossible things. That's important for us to learn. These guys were certainly outnumbered. Um, we saw a similar impossibility happen in Pharaoh's, with Pharaoh in Egypt, right? I mean, what would you have expected is what I would have expected if I had been Abram and I got found out that I was lying to the king. I would have expected he'd just kill me and it'd be over. Not that he would say, take all of the wealth that I just gave you and go. Oh, and here's your wife back. That's not what I would have expected, all right? It was miraculous that it happened. But here's the, here's the point. We see that situation, we see this situation, a pattern is emerging. And because I know what some of the other things are coming in Scripture, I can, I can notice this little pattern here, even in a small little story like this. What we're going to see time and time and time and time and time again is that God can do the things that are impossible for us to do. The things that are far beyond our wildest imaginations. God can do the impossible things. Jesus said it in Matthew 19, 26. He said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Now we go, we go on here in verse 17. And we read, it says, After his return from the defeat of Cheddar, and the kings who were with him. The king of Sodom, remember that was one of the defeated kings. The king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh. That is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand and Abram gave him a tenth of everything now there's been a great deal of thought invested into this meeting in the king's valley a lot has been made of the fact that Melchizedek, who's this new character that just appears here and only here in the Old Testament, was both a king and a priest. All right, that's what it tells us right here. That's a very rare combination. You don't usually find that. Um, in fact, a lot of times the kings and the priests are at odds. You don't usually find both a king and a priest. Not only that, we see that he brings bread and wine to Abram. And so... For New Testament Christians that know the story of Jesus, it's, it's the, the imagery and the parallels of Jesus bringing bread and wine to his followers, right, in communion. The fact that Jesus is both our king and our priest. So those parallels are undeniable. And, and if you want to study that a little more, you can read Hebrews chapter 7 on your own. Take a little note of that. Hebrews chapter 7, it unpacks this and it goes back and forth between how Jesus is like Melchizedek and how Melchizedek is, is, is like Jesus. But here's the thing. We're not going to look at that today. 
Because I don't want to skip ahead and miss the important development that this had in Abram's life. Okay? Abram gets a theology lesson here from this priest king. He was priest, it tells us there, of God Most High. Look at that phrase. In fact, in my Bible, I've underlined it. Four times in this passage, that that phrase is repeated, God Most High. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. How, How is this? Because so far, the only person that we've heard that God's been talking to is Abram. This isn't like, there is no Jewish system of sacrifices. Moses hasn't come. There is no Ten Commandments. There's, none of this has happened yet. How, how is this? And not only that, we don't know where he came from or how he even became a, a worshiper of God, much less a priest of God. Who made him a priest? Maybe he earned the title of priest after leading Abram and Bera in this worship service in the King's Valley? We don't know. But I want you to notice what he taught Abram. And we know that Abram learned it because as soon as Abram starts talking now to Bera, the king of Sodom, he starts using the same language that he just heard from Melchizedek. All right? Um, He learned this language that God Most High has blessed me. God Most High has blessed me. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. He is the one who delivered these enemies to us. And how did he respond? It tells us there in the end of verse 20, he gave a tithe. Abram's offering of a tithe, a tenth of everything that they had gathered to this king and priest, is significant. Because Melchizedek was a representative of the Lord. And it was the Lord that Abram made this offering and fulfilled his vow to God. So, this is lesson five. When we recognize God's blessing, it should result in gratitude and generosity. God's blessing should result in gratitude and generosity. A grateful person is a joy-filled person. This week's Thanksgiving. And guys, we have a lot to be thankful for and grateful for. And this is a great opportunity for us to be generous and to be thankful. Are there things that are going wrong in your lives? Yes. And by the way, you're not the only one here sitting in this room that something's not been going well lately. All right? Yes, there's bad stuff going on. There's difficulties. There's struggles. There's confusion. You may have issues with your health, issues with relationships, issues with finances. Okay? We all struggle but there are also some shared things that we all have, and that's things to be grateful for and thankful for. We can be people of gratitude, people of generosity. Things don't have to be perfect in your life for you to finally start being grateful. All right? Hebrews 12, 28 and 29 says this. It says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This is what Abram did. He recognized God most high is the one, the possessor of heaven and earth. He's the one that's blessed me in this victory. And out of that, I want to offer worship to him. 
We can be those grateful people. We're called to be those grateful people. God's blessing should result in gratitude and generosity. And now our last, our last little bit, and we finish here today, in verse 21. It says, And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. That's bold, right? This guy just got his booty kicked by some other king, lost everything. But he still comes up here, give me the persons. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, in verse 22, I have lifted my hand to, listen, the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Sound familiar? It should. And I lifted my hand to the Lord that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that's yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. And what we see here is Abram blessing others. Now, the king of Sodom was not really in a place to make demands. But being a king, he tried anyway. And he did at least ask for the bare minimum. He didn't say, hey, Abram, most of that stuff's mine. Give it back. It wasn't that. He just said, well, can I at least have my city back? Like, let the people come home, you know. Let, let, let that happen. But Abram takes advantage of this opportunity to express his faith in God. And what he just learned from Melchizedek of saying, it was God who did it. And, and I've got a name to put on it. Oh, I like that phrase, God most high. Yes, that's the one. He is the one who pr provided this victory for us. And I'm going to tell you, king of Sodom, and, you know, being the king of Sodom, um, he was ruling an incredibly wicked city, it tells us here. So there's a very good chance that the ruler of the incredibly wicked city was also incredibly wicked. So Abram's taking an opportunity here to speak to this, this non-believer, this wicked non-believer. And what does he do? He takes advantage of that situation and gives him more than he deserved. He shows him grace. He shows him grace. This is ancient evangelism at its best. Can you imagine what Bera, the king of Sodom, must have thought after all that? He's like, hold on. I was minding my business when this king comes down, King Cheddar, and he comes down and we, we get our stuff together, we go out to fight him, we get obliterated, I lose everything, and then this, this little nomad guy who lives across the Jordan River, he takes 318 of his men, he marches all the way up to Dan, he wipes out this army that's wiped out me and four other kings, and then he brings everything back, and now on top of that, he's going to tell me that the only way he could do that was because of this God. And not only that, he's now blessing me with gifts. How must that have sounded for this king? Guys, that's essentially what we tell people when we share the good news of the gospel. What are we saying? We're saying, yeah, we were broken too. But Jesus came and did something radical and amazing in our lives. And from that, we now have life, not just life now, but life for eternity. For a non-believer who doesn't understand that, has not heard that before, they're thinking the same thing the king of Sodom's thinking. Like, what? How is this even possible? Well, we narrow it down to a simple word, grace. 
It's just by the goodness of God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. Abram, notice also, blessed even his neighbors, those tribal leaders who he lived near. So number six, lesson number six that we learn here from this story, our final lesson, is that we are called to be a blessing to others. Be a blessing to others. The people of God are meant to bring good news and blessing to the world that does not know him. It's easy to love those who love us. It's comforting to only be around those who think like us, act like us, and live like us. But that's not the heart of Jesus. We are called to demonstrate the love of God in our hearts and in our actions towards those who do not know him. Yes, we are supposed to love each other. It says in John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another, which is good. Keep loving the people of God. But Jesus also said in Matthew 22, 37, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In Luke 10, a lawyer comes and asks Jesus, well, what do you mean by neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Who is that supposed to be? And then Jesus gives the story of the good Samaritan, where a Samaritan shows mercy and generosity to someone who probably would have despised him. And then he finishes it with a command and says to his people, you go and do likewise. We are called to be a blessing. So Abram's faith was being developed, and these experiences were shaping him. And God does the very same thing with us. It might not be as elaborate and exciting as battling armies and rescuing our family members, but God's still at work. And every day is another opportunity for us to learn and grow. And my prayer for you guys today is that maybe one or two of these lessons are for you this week. Look back at this list through the week and say, God, what, what are you doing in my life? What can I, where can I learn um, about this? And if so, write that stuff down. Pray through it each day, and let's watch as God grows us. Amen? Let's pray.